Hey guys, I'm Raf. And I'm James. On today's episode, The Psychiatrist's Guide to ADHD. I learned from the best. Eventually, it takes you a couple of years, but you know, it sinks <laughs> in eventually. Then I start listening to you. I don't want this to be comprehensive. I just want to cover ADHD in a nutshell. We've discussed ADHD on two or three different episodes. We did one about diagnosing ADHD in adults. We did one about how ADHD interplays with internet gaming disorder. But, you know, we left some basic things out because we were never kind of doing the, the basic overview of ADHD. So that's kind of what I want to do today. What do you think? I think that sounds great. I mean, it's something that so many people deal with. Um, and I think it's very important that people understand like the basic fundamental signs and symptoms so that they'll know if maybe they could benefit from treatment. I'm torn. Like Natalie Imbruglia? Yes. Wait, what? Is that a movie? That's a, that's a song from the 90s. Oh, I don't remember. You clearly didn't watch enough MTV in the 90s. Um, Are you a TRL kind of person? Yeah, I was. And you don't know, you know that song. I'm sure I do. Yeah. I just, I'm, yeah. I have ADHD and have word finding difficulties. <laughs> what is ADHD? ADHD. And you've said this before, and I really appreciate this definition is not an inability to pay attention. It is an inability to regulate attention. Excellent. I learned from the best. Eventually, well, it takes you a couple of years, but you know, it sticks in eventually. <laughs> then I start listening to you after you tell me like 20 times. <laughs> yeah. Um, so before we dive into like the symptoms, and I don't want to spend forever on them, I want to preface it with a reminder about how the DSM works, right? And how diagnosis works in psychiatry. All psychiatric conditions are really syndromes, right? And what Correct. I mean by that is we diagnose them based on a cluster of symptoms, right? And so by definition, the diagnoses will capture anybody who presents with those symptoms. So rarely are you talking about one discrete medical condition, right? You're talking about people that present with a similar pattern of behavior, but there could be a million underlying causes. So I don't see schizophrenia as one discrete diagnosis, and I definitely don't see ADHD as one discrete condition. What do you think about that? I completely agree. You know, in the rest of medicine, diagnoses usually begin with a specific symptom, like hypertension, for example, just means that your blood pressure is elevated. It doesn't explain why that might be. There's an, and there's a million different reasons. It literally just says that for your age and, uh, and, considering a lot of other factors, your blood pressure is elevated. Psychiatric diagnoses are a little bit different. They come from clinical observation of behaviors and emotions, right? So they are inherently right from the jump, just a little more subject to interpretation, right? You know, there isn't a lab test. There isn't a vital sign that tells us in one go, all right, RAF has ADHD. There are tests that we can do. There are screening exams that we can do. There are interviews, psychiatric interviews, structured interviews that we can do. But at the end of the day, it's a person describing a constellation of symptoms to another person who's spent their life becoming educated in this stuff. And then they make 
what what essentially is a very well-informed judgment call as to whether that symptom cluster really really makes sense for you exactly. and kind of defines what you're going through there's also mean no no substitute for clinical judgment definitely um, that also means you could have all of the symptoms of ADHD and not have ADHD clearly attributable to something else, right? Then, then really it might be better to consider it as part of that something else, right? Because part of the utility of the diagnosis is, you know, statistically, if a person meets the criteria, statistically speaking, they're likely to respond to the medications that are indicated for ADHD and the types of therapy that are indicated for ADHD, but that just becomes a starting point, right? But if you could have all the symptoms of ADHD for, from something like obstructive sleep apnea, or I don't know, a thyroid condition, you know, a bunch of medical conditions, drugs, right? And in those cases, the answer is not going to be a stimulant, most likely. And I'll, right? I'll take it a step further even, and, and this is a little bit of the uh, addiction psychiatrist in me coming out. I'll say you could even have the symptoms of ADHD that are not attributable to some other medical or psychiatric condition, but if they're not causing functional impairment, right? then maybe you don't meet the criteria for having the illness. You know, So even if you are suffering from inattention, hyperactivity, or a mix of the both that really falls within the criteria of ADHD, if you're getting straight A's, if you're killing it at work, if you're if you're maybe distracted in conversation with others, but you're able to regulate your attention when you put your mind to it, maybe you have it, maybe you don't, but maybe you don't need the medications and therapies that we have for it. Yeah, actually, I think that's a good segue. Something else I want to say up front too. This is what I call the primary dialectic of ADHD, which is there's nothing wrong with you if you have ADHD, right? To some degree, it's a misnomer to call it a disorder, right? And that's really true for all psychiatric conditions, to be honest. And when, what I mean by that is a certain segment of the population, about 10% probably, have ADHD, but they were born that way and they have every right to exist in that way, right? I woke up like this. <laughs> um, and and it's, a common, it's a common issue, right? That like, People feel like, why are you trying to change me? Right. Like this is how my brain works. And that's absolutely right. And hundred percent. Not every kid is designed to sit in a classroom for eight hours a day without moving and, and doing repetitive tasks. Right. Some kids are not physiologically wired to do that. And there's nothing wrong with them inherently. And as a general matter, society is going to expect that of them. And at some point or another, it's beneficial to shape your own behavior and change enough so that you don't end up with all of the downsides that can come with ADHD, which again, you have every right to exist that way. But we know from experience that the way you interact with society is going gonna, is gonna to have a pretty high likelihood of some issues like marital problems, failing at your job, failing in school, behavioral addiction, substance abuse, concussions, a lot of stuff. Another thing that we have to talk about when we're talking about ADHD, and we've mentioned this in previous episodes, so I won't go into it too deep or try to substantiate it too much here, is that we know from neuroimaging studies that simply engaging with the technology that is a part of everyday human existence today, you are making your brain change in a way that predisposes you to ADHD. Yeah. So not only are people just born this way, it's right. genetic, it's just how their brains are wired. 
even if you aren't born this way, certainly if you are, just by engaging with technology, social media, video games, applications in the way that you have to to survive these days, you're going to make your brain change in ways that may predispose you to this illness. So just reinforcing what Raf is saying, nothing wrong with you. In fact, it kind of makes a lot of sense that uh, people are having these symptoms more and more. And in our increasingly modern technologically driven lives, those symptoms become more and more of an yeah. impediment to us progressing. We'll have to do a whole separate episode because that is a new issue, right? The diagnosis of ADHD is on the rise. And part of it is partially because of the way that we're interacting with technology. I do think it's changing the brains of the average person. I mean, think about it right now. Right now, I have, uh, I'm talking to Raf on a Zoom call. I have his face on one side of this giant screen in front of me. On the other side, I have uh, our audio recording software that is showing me second by second exactly what my levels are, you know, um, how the recording is going. I also have several other browser windows open. And just to have this conversation, I'm already, my brain is juggling several different, you know, sources of information and assigning salience to the ones that it should assign salience to and not assigning salience to other ones, despite the fact that they're literally beeping and booping in my face right now. Yeah. And I, th I think it shows that there's kind of two pieces establishing that you have the symptoms, establishing that it's, you're likely born with it, you know, that it's not directly attributable to another medical condition. I think there's still two kind of hurdles. One that you already mentioned to, to say that this person meets criteria. One is either dysfunction or the person is suffering because of the symptoms. And the other one is, it's not explicitly in there, but it is, it's inherently part of it is where you land on the spectrum in comparison to society too. So definitely we, we all have symptoms of everything, right? And there's a lot of people that have a lot of the symptoms of ADHD, but they're just not extreme, right? Whereas some people might be on the, on the way outer edge of, of the bell curve and like clearly, yeah, like they, that needs some sort of intervention. And the reason I bring that up now is because, so for example, speaking of technology, TikTok videos are what, like a few seconds long sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. kids are wiring their brains to receive those tiny snippets of information. And that might make it harder to have to sit and watch something that's like much longer without as much attention grabbing stimuli or, or to sit and do something for two hours straight. And on the other hand, though, if society keeps going in that direction and, and receiving information in little snippets becomes the norm, then it's no longer going to be a problem. You see what I mean? Yeah. The, pro the problem I, I might think... be the other thing. The problem might be people who can't pick up the information in a six second clip. Exactly. It's training people's brains to approach information in a different way. And, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, younger patients that I meet, I, I see them when I interview them. Um, I'm I'm mainly in the hospital right now, so usually they'll be sitting in the in the bed, and they're watching the same TikTok over and over and over. Yeah. And that's really what our brains are being trained for these days. Is these kids, and I can say we because I have clinically diagnosed ADHD, uh, as clinically as we have spoken about at, child, at length. Child at heart forever. Syndrome. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I could say we because um, we are good. People with ADHD are good at absorbing like every snippet of information from that six second clip. 
we might have to watch it, you know, three or five or 10 times, but later I'm going to be able to tell you exactly what music was playing, exactly what the person in the video was wearing, exactly at what point the cat jumped out and freaked everyone out, you know, like I'm going, and that's going to be with me. That's going to stay with me. But yeah, if, if you sit me down or if you sit us down and you have us watch a two hour documentary, how much of that are we going to absorb? You know, it's well, it depends if it's something you're really passionate about, right? Going back sure. to, to what you said, it's, a, it's an ability to to regulate attention. So the problem just as often is hyper focus, right? So mm-hmm. you could also get pulled into something and then not be able to leave for like three hours. And Very if true. that happens to line up with what your job is or what you're supposed to be doing at school, A plus, right? Yeah. But if, <laughs> but if it doesn't, then you're not doing the other thing you're supposed to be doing either, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So let's talk about the actual criteria, right? So ADHD is short for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. There's no such thing as ADD anymore. That was, you know, pre DSM five. And then you specify whether it's predominantly inattentive type or predominantly hyperactive impulsive type or combined. And so there's nine symptoms in each bucket, right? And either a inattentive or in hyperactive impulsive. And so you have to have six out of the nine in one of the two buckets to meet the diagnostic criteria, right? So Mm -hmm. six out of the nine inattentive symptoms or six out of the nine hyperactive impulsive symptoms. And if you have six out of nine in both, then you have combined type. And aren't there age differences as well? Right. And that's the other point. Exactly. So if if you're 17 or older, you only have to have five out of nine because Mm -hmm. most classically, although you've told me that it's been different for you, most classically, the hyperactive symptoms tend to go away as you get older. And so, you know, research showed that like, there's people here clearly that have ADHD, but now that they're adults only have five out of the nine symptoms. So we need to adjust the the criteria. So, you know, some of the symptoms might tone down a little bit, but you could still have problems. And and the, the idea that ADHD is a disorder of childhood and goes away when you're adult, it's BS. At this point, it's just a myth, right? That's not a, a debatable matter anymore. ADHD is a lifelong condition in most people that have it. And yeah, and it's a neurodevelopmental disorder, right? That's the other key. It, you're essentially born with it. Either you develop it very early on in the developmental period, or you were genetically programmed to have it, or there was some sort of insult like cigarette smoke, or, you know, some sort of medication during the pregnancy that you were exposed to. I think and that it, uh... it's something that you're essentially born with and that you have your whole life. As we get older, it's not even necessarily that those symptoms go away. Again, I have to stress what Raf was saying earlier. There's nothing wrong with you. Your brain works. It just works in a different way. So there's no, there's nothing about ADHD that makes it impossible for someone to compensate for oh, yeah. these issues. So as we get older, just by living life day to day, we learn ways that we can overcome or compensate for some of these symptoms. And that's why when you meet someone who's maybe being diagnosed with ADHD for the first time, they might not tell you, oh, I have this specific symptom, when in reality, they might still be suffering from it, but they've learned how to compensate in other ways. So sometimes people don't report that when they're telling us what they're going through. And actually, ADHD, and I I mean this sincerely, if you learn how to harness it, it can be your superpower, right? Some of the most talented and successful people in human history have had ADHD, like just to, to list some names of people that have been diagnosed with ADHD, Michael, James Scherer, James Scherer, celebrity psychiatrist, yours and... truly as well, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> Simone Biles, Bill Gates, Michael Jordan, 
Terry Bradshaw, the, the, the list goes on and on, right? If you can harness the energy that you have, right? Or the creativity that you have, if you have primarily an attentive type, you can use it to your advantage and it can be your superpower, right? And, and also going back to the idea that there's nothing inherently wrong with you. If you look at it from an evolutionary societal perspective, it's important for our society to have people with ADHD. Those would have been the explorers. Somebody with impulsive hyperactive ADHD, that might be the guy that gets on the boat and sails across the ocean and discovers that new land, right? I'm, you know, other people might be like, nah, I'm not messing with that, you know? Right. It's it's so funny. When I saw Hamilton for the first time, all I could think was this guy, based on how productive he was and how intense he was, either had ADHD or bipolar disorder right. <laughs> or both, you know, so it, it's true. And to give you a to give you a concrete example, I know this from my life. I tend to be slow to warm up, but then I do everything all at once. So last night, Raf knows this, you know, I, so I am a full-time inpatient academic psychiatrist, but I am opening a private practice on the side. I've never created a website before. I made an entire website for my private practice last night. I thought I was working on it for about 20 minutes. And I think I was probably working on it for about six continuous hours. Wow. Um, and it was it just great. because- It looks great, by the way. Thank you. You did good. It's uh, it's very much work in progress. Put, I'll put it in the show notes. Can, I, I highly recommend James. I would, I would see him as my own doctor or have my family members see them. That's very flattering. And of course, likewise, I would, uh, and I, I have referred many a patient to uh, the Choir Institute and to RAF in particular, but uh, I, I appreciate that. But no, it was because it's something I'm interested in, passionate in. I'm excited about opening a private practice. I'm excited about incorporating it into kind of my broader career, you know, while continuing to be an academic psychiatrist. And I have all of these ideas and desires, and it's very easy for someone like me, even though I am treated and medicated for this condition, for it to still kind of, oh my goodness, how's it when I am? You know, that that happens to me all the time. I guess we should mention some of the symptoms. Yes. Although I don't want to, again, you, you can look it up. This is the easy part of the diagnosis, right? Anybody can look it up and just check off the symptoms. Um, but I but do feel like, you know, just to give a flavor we... though. Yeah. Yeah. So in the inattentive category, they include failing to pay attention to detail, making little mistakes, having difficulty sustaining attention, doesn't seem to listen to, right? So like you call the person's name and it's like they never heard you, right? Which is why you often have to get a hearing test in a kid first before, you know, because mm -hmm. you have to rule out deafness or hearing loss. Doesn't follow through with instructions, difficulty organizing tasks and activities, avoids dislike or reluctance to engage in things that require sustained mental effort, losing things, easily distracted by other stimuli and being forgetful, right? Those are the inattentive symptoms. On the other hand, the hyperactive impulsive symptoms are being fidgety, getting up and moving around when you're expected to be seated, running around when it's inappropriate or climbing on the furniture, right? When it's inappropriate, um, in the case of kids, right? Adults might have their own version of it, you know, which could just be like pacing around the room. Um, not able to just chill and do things quietly in a relaxed manner. Being on the go, like you're driven by a motor, talking excessively, blurting out an answer before the question has been completed, right? Like on the game shows, or you're like, you're I, I want you to know rush. that. Yeah. Raf, just when he said that one in particular, he looked at me through Zoom, like, like <laughs> I looked directly 
into your soul through, through yes the you did yeah <laughs> I, I just saw i pictured you on family feud just like the, the, <laughs> the host isn't even there you're there hitting the button <laughs> oh my god they would um, they would have to throw that episode straight in the trash yeah. um <laughs> interrupting others in conversation speaking of the devil uh <laughs> and having a hard time waiting your turn in general so again you can have you have to have 16 or younger. You have to have six out of the nine in at least one of the categories. An adult, five out of the nine. And by the way, the other thing about the age that we should discuss is that in the first three to four years of life, there's an incredibly wide range for what's quote unquote normal, right? So mm-hmm. you can't really accurately diagnose ADHD in a kid that's three, four, you know, sometimes it's so extreme that you kind of know, but you never know for sure, because there's a really wide range of normal behavior in kids that young. Sophia had a ballet yesterday. Mm -hmm. And like, if you look at the preschool ballet class, you could diagnose them all with ADHD. Like they're all just looking (laughs) around like they're spaced out, you know, it's normal for that age. Right. So Mm -hmm. that's another thing to keep in mind. I'm sure she did amazingly. She did very well. I was very proud of her. She's brave. Very cool. But again, right, the criteria is just kind of like a narrow snippet of like, that's like the bottom line. This is what we're going to choose to define this for the benefit of research and figuring out which medications and which therapies work. But again, the DSM says in the beginning, like these diagnostic criteria don't represent the condition. They're just a small piece. It's a much more complicated picture. So I think the other, another thing that you have to mention when you're discussing ADHD is executive functioning, because it's kind of a a disorder that focuses on, well, for lack of a better term, sorry, (laughs) on executive, it's, it's centered around executive functioning. And I'll throw in a little caveat here. You know, every psychiatric condition involves executive functioning, of course, but but ADHD is is purely all all, not, not entirely, but you know, more defined by executive functioning. So um, again, you know, executive functioning, uh, how would you describe it? I'd say it's the ability to make a rational decision based on the available information. And, um, you know, as we've spoken about earlier in this podcast, assigning the appropriate salience to different pieces of information when you're making that decision. You know, there's many ways that you could slice it up into like components. The way that I like that, that I find most useful is breaking it down into three broad elements, one being inhibitory mm-hmm. control, right? So the ability to, to, to have some impulse control, essentially, right? To not do something. Sure. Um, cognitive flexibility, which is the opposite of cognitive rigidity, you know, having the ability to shift between tasks, right? To take new information and process it and change your, your view on things mm-hmm. and working memory. I think those those three pieces and working memory, I guess we should say, is is like the part of your memory that's storing things that you're using like in the moment, like, you know, in, in a matter of seconds or minutes. So like you're doing a math problem and you like get the seven and you need to move over. You put that on the side of your head like, yeah, that that's a seven. I'm going to keep that there and then I'm going to do this other thing and I'll come back and add the seven, you know. That's your working memory. Those are different areas of the brain, right? So really what Raf is describing is executive functioning is the successful handshaking of different areas of your brain that specialize in different things. Everything working together, firing on all cylinders. With people with ADHD, it's not that they don't have, it's not that those parts of the brain aren't there or aren't working or aren't capable. It's just that 
they don't uh, cooperate. As, well, they're, they're wired well. really. What it means is that they're wired differently as compared to whatever that average human is, right? Even though there's no such thing as normal, right? Mm-hmm. Every human trait, there's an infinite number of human traits, right? But we focus on, I don't know, a couple dozen or, or, or so that are most clinically useful. But every human trait is on a bell curve. It falls on a spectrum. And so really what, what it means is that your brain and these areas of your brain or, or these functions are wired sufficiently differently from whatever the average person is that your behavior tends to be different than whatever the average or expected behavior is, right? So that, that, could- that's where the, the concept of neuroatypical comes from. And 100% people with ADHD fall on, in the category of neuroatypical. Sorry, I, I, I can't stop. This is my info dumping, right? That's another thing you do in ADHD. There's a, <laughs> there's a big overlap between ADHD and autism. And a lot of people with ADHD think they have autism and really don't. Um, that mm-hmm. happens because if your inattentive symptoms are intense enough, you will just miss things in conversation, right? Sure. And then you'll say like, I can't have a normal back and forth conversation. But I think that's qualitatively a little different than what happens in autism. Although again, we'll do a whole separate episode on autism. A lot of it is going to sound the same, I think, in terms of being a syndrome, being a spectrum, being wired differently than, than whatever normal is, right. Whatever the average is. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a huge overlap though, between ADHD and autism symptomatically. I agree. But I, I, I just want to stress again, that it's not that these, these areas of the brain don't work as well as anyone else's. It's that it's just that, as Raf said, they're wired differently. So for example, if we're going to get into specifics, and I like this kind of thing, if we're talking about inhibitory control, we're talking about areas of the brain that are kind of more front and higher up. Mm-hmm. One of those areas is called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And maybe if you're in the process of demonstrating executive control, and you're making an important decision, maybe your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex needs to make a call to your hippocampus where all of your memories are stored. Mm -hmm. And maybe in someone without ADHD, it's not so difficult for the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex to pick up the phone for someone like myself, for someone with ADHD, maybe that call doesn't get made. Maybe that call gets dropped. So I I imagine it goes through, but it calls like, I don't know, like the Nintendo power hotline instead. (laughs) (laughs) It got the numbers mixed up. Yeah, I love it. Exactly. Yeah. Another piece, it's not really part of executive functioning, but it's inherently part of executive functioning is the reward system. People with ADHD, not not everyone, but many tend to have a high level of reward sensitivity. So the reason it's, in, I think it's implicitly involved in executive function is because when you talk about inhibitory control, but very often that's what you're inhibiting, right? Is your, your reward system. You get excited about something and you just can't wait, right? Mm-hmm. And people with high inhibitory control can get really excited about something, but just sit there and like, just think about it in their mind, right? Where other people with low inhibitory control jump out of their seat and, you know, approach the thing. Sure. And sometimes that's the, you know, another thing that that shows you though, is these traits all interact with each other dynamically. And so what I do see often, for example, is there could be somebody who actually has a relatively normal amount of inhibitory control, right? Like that trait in isolation might be pretty typical in terms of the population, but their reward sensitivity is so intense that it'll blow past their inhibitory control in certain situations, Mm. right? And I see that a lot in behavioral addictions and gambling addiction, you know, gaming addiction. In other areas and many areas of their life, they may be 
pretty good at inhibitory control, right? But the reward yeah. sensitivity is so intense that when that network fires, it fires and there's nothing that's going to stop it, right? The horse gets out of the barn. And it um, takes time and treatment and perhaps medications to retrain those pathways right. and make sure that everything is working, you know, as it should be. Doesn't mean that it's impossible, just means that there might be a little bit of an extra effort that's needed. I, I also want to give a couple analogies or illustrations of how to understand ADHD that sure. have helped me, right? So again, a huge one is it's not an inability to pay attention, it's an inability to regulate attention. And actually think about it inherently. It's not that the person is not paying attention to any, they're paying attention to something. It's just that it's not the thing they're supposed to be paying attention to. So yeah. it's like a it's like two sides of the same coin, right? Hyper-focus and not being focused. It's, it's almost a subjective question, right? Like I'm looking at James, he's got this blank stare in his head. And I'm saying, James, focus, you're not focusing. And he's over here thinking, nah, man, I'm like, I'm, I am in detail listing every song from, what was that lady's name? Natalie and Bruglia. Natalie and Bruglia. From Natalie and Bruglia's album. I'm, I'm doing lyric for lyric. You're, you're hyper-focused on that right now, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and I, I yeah. would say as a kid, I, and I've, I've said this before, I was probably mostly inattentive. And I will say there wasn't nothing going on up there. I was just thinking right. about Power Rangers when I should have been thinking about math. Well, and should, so should is a judgmental word. Because the fact that I, you were thinking yeah. about Power Rangers also is part of who you are, right? Mm -hmm. Part of what helps you relate to other people who love Power Rangers. That's very true. So, That's very true. I, what I would say is where it probably would have been more effective to be focusing on math Definitely. during the math final, dude, like when you're about yeah. to fail out and have to get held back. <laughs> um, you know, time and place for everything. And and, and one yeah. of the issues in ADHD is so. And, and the other thing about this regulating attention is everybody struggles with this. People who were quote unquote normal, it's harder to pay attention to a non-preferred task, right? A boring or dull task that just doesn't grasp your attention, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody has that. It's just that in ADHD, it's like to the extreme. So it's like 10 times harder, right? It's like, it becomes nearly impossible at times. And then that's when it becomes problematic. Exactly. And, and that can lead to kids and patients internalizing that as exactly. simply, I cannot do this. Yep. And that's really such a shame. And it, it really um, goes such a long way, unfortunately, to damaging the self-esteem of these patients and yeah. these kids. And I think that part of what we try to do is show people with ADHD that they can, that they can. And, uh, you know, it's, it's nothing inherently wrong with you. You don't lack the ability to do calculus. You know, you just need to do calculus when you're also getting adequate treatment. Or when you're in the shower or while you're, while you're doodling, right? That's sure. by the way, that's one of my pet peeves that drives me crazy. Like telling kids to stop doodling in class when you have ADHD, like a, a lot of people have to be doodling in order to pay attention. It helps you be able to focus, you know? Um, and, and the, Definitely. the term that drives me crazy is it's volitional, right? I've said this before. I can't not say it again. The parent will say, I know he can pay attention because I'm trying to get him to do his homework, but he's playing a game on his phone for like three hours straight. Right. So I know he, it's, it's not, it's not that he can't pay attention. It's that he doesn't want to, mm. right? No, that's wrong. Yeah. It's wrong. It's it. Why would the kid not do what he's supposed to do? Right. Like, do you think he wants to make his life harder? Right. If it were think... easy for him to do it, he would do it and get it over. With, exactly. Right? And that, that's true across the board when it comes to mental health, whether it's a substance use disorder, whether it's a mood disorder, 
and everything in between, you know, so often I have families who say, you know, I think this is just his personality. And I have to explain to them, personality may have initially played somewhat of a small role in this. But, you know, at this point, this is really the alcohol use disorder talking. And it's not that, you know, there's anything inherently broken about this person's personality or or anything like that. It's just that this is the mental illness taking hold and mental illness, whether it's ADHD or use disorders or mood disorders, cuts across age, socioeconomic strata, race, ethnicity, background, ideology. It doesn't care. And it affects how we think and feel and how we relate to others. It's great that we've moved towards understanding the role of trauma and life experiences in in people's conditions. Mm-hmm. But we've almost the pendulum has almost swung too far and we've lost sight of temperament, right? Because what we're talking sure. about here are temperamental traits, things that you're hardwired with, right? I think we forget the outcomes from these temperamental traits are almost bound to happen. Somebody with really high reward sensitivity and low inhibitory control, there's a very, very high likelihood they're going to develop an addiction of some sort, right? Exactly. Yeah. Which isn't to say that we can't intervene and that's what psychotherapy is all about, right? It's like kind of teaching us the ways that we're programmed so that hopefully in the future, before something really gets in our way, we can identify early, all right, I feel like I'm acting like I did in the past when I had a problem with X. So I really want to change the way I'm thinking about this so I don't have a problem with Y. And, you know, we are trained to help people identify those patterns. And it can be quite effective, but they don't go away. I think that's what Raf is trying to say. Your temperament, you know, you you can shape it. You can shape it. You can shape it. Yeah. But it's it's going to be by definition, it's it's likely to be there for your whole life, right? it's how you're defining it. You're, you're defining that based on, you know, compared to the average person, I am more impulsive than that person. You know what I mean? And if you're, and if you go through a stressful time or you go through another trauma, there can be backsliding in terms of, yep. um, you know, regressing to those kind of more um, baseline temperamental features of your personality, which you may have in check when everything is going well, but may rear their head again when you're going through a rough patch. Another analogy that I brought up once or twice that I love, um, that I think I came up with on my own, who knows? So no, no nothing. We'll is say new. you did. This is a Raph original. No, nothing is new under the sun is the, is the, the saying, all right. So I'm sure I, I got it from somewhere <laughs> is the idea of, of magnification, right? That when you have ADHD, the magnification mechanism of your brain is broken, right? Meaning one second, you're, entirely zoomed a hundred percent in right and you're seeing ants walking around on a leaf right and then the next second it's like whiplash you zoom all the way out and you're seeing the entire forest right and you're not in control of where that magnification is you're zooming in and out right without without being in control of that i had one of my most influential mentors during med school tell me when when my condition was undertreated that um she said, uh, uh, this is a doctor critiquing how I was approaching our patients on the inpatient medical service. She said, uh, James, I think that you understand everything, but I think that you're missing either the forest for the trees or you're missing a tree for the forest. She said literally both. said that to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, little do and, you know, uh, depending on which second you ask me that question. <laughs> exactly. Right. And, and I, you know, uh, I had a little bit of insight at the time. 
So instead of being defensive or I was very ready to hear that. And I said, yes, thank you. (laughs) And I think that's another thing. You took it as validation of your experience. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, a lot of times people, again, just going back to, you know, the the stigma and judgment that can come along with these things. These aren't, these aren't uh, labels. A, A correct diagnosis should be informative. It should be freeing in some ways, or it can be not for everyone, but uh, you know, because it will, it will give you an explanation for why you've been through what you've been through. And I was so thankful that she said that, and it gave me an actionable thing to try to get better. And uh, so, yeah. Do you want to say who said that? That was uh, Emily Gordon, who is now um, an intern involved in the uh, addiction Addiction. fellowship. Yep. Cool. At, uh, at Rutgers university. Yeah. Dr. Gordon, thanks for schooling young James. Yeah. And she still agreed to write me a letter of recommendation. Bless her heart. Nice. Although if you didn't read it, you have no idea what it says. <laughs> I know. I, who knows? She could have, she could have. Needs glasses. Sunk me. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I made it, th- I made it into residency and I made it into fellowship. So you know what? It worked Couldn't out. have been that bad. It worked out. Yeah. The last one of these kind of analogies uh, is, is that of signal to noise ratio, right? And I think it, it it's, I'll, I'll describe what I mean, but I'll also then maybe try to do an experiment to, to allow you to experience it, right? So signal to noise ratio is something that's important when you're recording a podcast or when you're recording anything, for example, right? So the signal is the voice. You're, you're trying to pick up a high amount of signal and as low, as low an amount of background noise as possible, right? You want a high signal to noise ratio. And in ADHD, you often don't have that. You have a, a low signal to noise ratio. And so there's just a cluster fluff of stuff going on all around, right? When you're trying to pick up that signal, but you're being pulled in every other direction, right? And actually that's the best way to understand how the stimulants work is experientially improve the signal to noise ratio. So let's see, let me, let me find the song. And, and uh, I want to just I mean. add while Raph is getting that ready, uh, this can really tank patients uh, in testing scenarios. If the testing room isn't quiet, if there's some distraction, even if there's a police siren outside, you know, that can really derail someone's attention with ADHD and really put them at a steep disadvantage. Uh, And as Raf said, you know, there are different ways that we can cope with that. You know, one of those ways is with the stimulant medication. I'm trying to figure out who's the least likely to sue us for copyright infringement. Uh, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're doctors. We're, we're doing the, we're doing a public service here. Right. This is definitely fair use. And isn't it, if you play less than 30 seconds, we're fine. No, that's a myth. I mean, it's it's not a myth per se. (laughs) It's a factor, but it's a much more complicated thing. You know, I was a intellectual property attorney before I went to medical school. So I knew you were an attorney. I I don't think I knew or did not remember that you were an intellectual property attorney. Yeah. That was my, I, I, uh, I got a concentration in intellectual property and entertainment law. Talk and about you, ADHD. Yeah. Jack of this all trades. There's another one, yeah. by the way. Jack of all trades, master of none. And yeah. don't forget the last half of that phrase is, is still better than a master of one. Mm-hmm. Right? People use that as yeah. like an insult sometimes, you know? No, it's a good thing. It's a, it is a good thing. Oh, play a Green Day song. Play something off Dookie. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Excellent. Um, Basket case is about, they mentioned the psychiatrist, maybe I'll go with that. All right. So, so the signal, right, is, is my voice, right? And the noise is going to be the music. 
that's even worse, the commercial. This is what a pretty high signal to noise ratio is, right? There is some background noise, but in comparison to my voice, right, it's, it's pretty low, right? Now, this is what it sounds like when you have a pretty low signal to noise ratio, right? So imagine trying to hear what I'm having, what I'm saying, right? But meanwhile, you have this blasting in every other part of your brain, right? So that's what ADHD can feel like. And when you get on a stimulant, that's what you're, you're trying to kind of improve. As I've said before, I'm very lucky. And it's not this way for everyone, but for some patients, it can be a night and day difference. Night and day. It can be. It can be one of the most powerful things that that we as a as, as a psychiatrist, that you as a parent, that you as a friend do is encourage someone to get into treatment and at least try one of these stimulants, because it really can make a huge difference. That said, unless I it's contraindicated, to, right? And there are unless the it's contraindicated if you have cardiac issues or if right. if there's something else going on. The other thing I'll say is that they are not for everyone, and each stimulant people kind of lump them in as one kind of thing. That is absolutely not how we should be viewing them. These medications are quite heterogeneous. They have different active metabolites. The one that works for me was found after two failed trials on others that are commonly used that I hated. And it go, it's the same way for many of the patients that I meet. They might try one, they might try Adderall, and the, it, they just do not agree with it. And then they try uh, Ritalin or Concerta or Vyvanse, and then it works for them. Yeah. So just because you try one and it doesn't work out doesn't mean that it won't work, but you have to work with your provider to make sure that you find the right one uh, and, with the knowledge that- And by the way- Whiffs. If you don't respond, that also doesn't mean you don't have ADHD, right? Not just because maybe a different one would work, but a lot of people with ADHD stimulants just don't mix well with them, right? Like this, particularly if you have anxiety or, you know, something else going on for some people that gets worse and then their ability to focus gets even worse, right? Although for in ADHD, anxiety is a kind of inherent symptom, right? Because you're constantly not able to do the stuff that you're expected to do, right? So you could imagine how that would eventually lead to anxiety, right? Like in my case, you know, my, my working memory can be terrible, right? And so I might have to respond to a text or an email immediately thinking like, if I don't do this now, I know myself, I'm going to forget. And then it's going to be like yeah. a month from now, right? Yeah. Uh, so that, but that causes anxiety, right? Because like, I know I'm not going to remember this stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. But anyway. Yeah. I digress, true, but though. a lot more to say, maybe we'll, you know, we'll do another one about some of the most kind of like frequently asked questions or things that come up. Sure. Um, but hopefully this was kind of a good broad description of, of, of ADHD, right? So there's, there's the criteria you have to have them. That's kind of the floor, but then there's a whole bunch of other questions like what's causing it, right? Is this something that's just kind of neurodevelopmental, which is supposed to be an ADHD or is it something else causing it? Right. And then you know, the criteria is just a small snippet of the diagnosis, right? There's a lot, a much broader picture that you have to understand, right? So, you know, it includes the, the, the idea of executive functioning, the reward system. It's, it's a, really a complicated great. dynamic construct that is very real, very real. And also a combination of a bunch of traits that are on a spectrum and people fall in all different places in all those different traits, right? And so again, that's why you see one case of ADHD, you see one case of ADHD, they're all different. And it's also why you should really, you know, you should be looking for a provider uh, who is going to 
be more interested in you and less interested in mm -hmm. the diagnosis. 100%. Right? Because as Raf is saying, you've seen one case of ADHD, you've seen one case of ADHD. Even though we might diagnose two people with the same um, condition, ADHD, we might have two completely different solutions. So you really have to make sure that your provider is paying attention to you and exactly what you are going through and not just, you know, slapping a label on this, on your life, on, on the way that you experience the world. Also to be true to my ADHD self, there's one more thing I, I want to mention, even though I said <laughs> we were done there, there's different ways to slice ADHD, right? That's kind of what we're talking about that each person is different. Um, but it's particularly inattentive versus hyperactive impulsive, like somebody who's purely inattentive versus somebody who's, you know, predominantly hyperactive impulsive can present entirely differently. And then the other way that I see that, that you need to slice it is based on underlying personality structure. If you have a cluster B temperament, that's going to show your ADHD is going to show a certain way. You're likely to be an externalizer, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you have a cluster C temperament, it's going to show in a different way, right? More likely to be an internalizer. So if you have like inattentive ADHD and social anxiety, and then you, you get the report from the school, the teacher's like, no, the kid's sitting there calmly. They don't have ADHD. Meanwhile, the kid goes home, right? The, the entire day they're stressed out. They're, they're going to the nurse because their stomach hurts because like their body's saying you need to move around, but their social anxiety is saying, no, you don't move. That's not acceptable. Right. And then they get home and they're jumping on the walls. Right. So yeah. it's a really, really dynamic and, and beautiful and interesting condition. Right. And again, it, you can use it as your superpower. You have a race car brain with bicycle brakes. And we're the break specialists. We'd like to sign off as always by reminding our listeners that if you need help, it is out there and we definitely encourage you to seek it out. Um, you do not have to suffer alone. There are a huge number of mental health professionals in this country who would be happy to help, whether it's depression, anxiety, um, you know, negative thoughts, negative self-image, uh, addiction, you know, whatever you might be going through, there's someone out there who, who can and wants to help. You can find them in a variety of ways. You can find them using your own health insurance if you happen to have it. You can find them using resources at university hospitals that usually have free or low-cost mental health services. You can also use Psychology Today or other publications like that. And we really would just encourage you, if you're suffering, to reach out and get some help. And remember, mental health issues, they're not a sign of weakness. They're not moral failings. They're medical conditions that can be treated. All right. I think that's it, James. So until next time. Adios. Peace. Peace.